you to look for the best buyer for your brand. And that does not necessarily have to be in the aggregator space. I mean, we are speaking to 90 aggregators, but you know what? There are hundreds and or not thousands of strategic buyers out there, you know, brands that have the businesses where they will be blown away by the numbers you have a, a pre, uh, you know, Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast for six, seven, and eight-figure Amazon private label e-commerce sellers, a subset of the Amazing FBA Podcast. This is your host, Michael Vizi. Today, we're in the middle of a discussion with Klaus uh, Rosenberg-Gotthardt of Epic Partners to discuss how you might be duped by the buyers of an Amazon uh, or e-commerce business. And if you're in the business uh, where you're thinking of selling soon or, or actually going through that process, you're going to find this incredibly relevant to you. If you are not yet in a position to sell your business, all I would say is, without going into too much detail, a uh, 10-second version is you are building a business in the e-commerce space, which has relatively modest profit margins and high costs, but which is eminently sellable for a decent multiple of the profits. Whereas if you're in the e-commerce space or service industry, you're selling something with a very high profit margin and potentially very high costs, uh, sorry, very high uh, charge, you know, that you could charge at high price, I'm trying to say. But that's not sellable. So if you are building an e-commerce business and you are not planning to exit, you have a lot of the downsides of your business model without the upsides. So I would suggest you educate yourself about how you can sell your business. And this is part of that process. So that's the reason why I think if you're an e-commerce business owner and you own something you know valuable and potentially sellable, you should definitely listen up and educate yourself about the process of selling. Thanks very much for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's sponsor is Eva, the best AI repricer for Amazon profits. Private label sellers, are you wasting your cash? Eva reprices your products for you, and the result is up to 50% more profits. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers in the USA and is now out for British and European sellers as well. For a 15-day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. I would say the biggest aggregators I've spoken to, the impression I got quite strongly is that they don't rely on the funny tricks because as you said, it's a small pond, but also it's, it's a seller's market. And because it's a model where you can be profitable very quickly, unlike a lot of things that private equity invests in, as I understand, then I think they probably have less need to be nasty, particularly related to cash flow. Because if you're funding something that's going to be profitable in four or five years time, you've got a horrendous cash drain and anything you can do to keep bashing the bank, cash in the bank, I can see would make sense. In this case, I guess they don't have the need to be so nasty. Would that tie with your experience? Correct. They are deploying capital to buy profitable businesses. So it is a whole, it is a different game of going into a startup venture and you know, you're going to burn money for the next four or five years until you can hope for a, for a return on your investment. But here money is deployed to buy profitable businesses. So that it is a different game. And, and also from the aggregator's perspective, many of them are drawing on the credit lines that are 100% funding the acquisition of these brands. So 
For them, it's the interest rates on their credit and their debt funding is maybe 11, 12%. So if the company is doing 20% profits and you're having now, you're acquiring it with 100% of someone else's money and it's costing you 11, 12% in interest rates, you have your overhead. If you can just grow that business 30, you know, 30% in the first two quarters, you know, you are in the black already. And that's why they really want to grow these brands fast. And that's also why they are, have these requirements for minimum uh, profitability. That's very interesting, actually, because you, I've, I've always known that the, the number that keeps going back is 20% EBITDA or SDE, but I haven't really figured out the maths of why that is. And I guess it's so that their balance between the money they're paying for the credit and the EBITDA can, and the growth will balance out as an equation. That's very interesting. And I guess what we're putting another finger on is, is a seller mistake, which is being overly paranoid about the buyers. And if they're a reputable company, as we're both kind of dancing around the fact that most of the, the bigger aggregators behave pretty well because they don't actually need to pay badly to get the deal. Whereas they're probably, in some cases, the people I've interviewed for the podcast have relied on the fact that other buyers are putting an LOI out there with an unrealistic number attached without doing due diligence. They then lowball the seller so much that the seller just backs out of the deal, which I guess they can at that point once they've done their exclusivity period. And then they'll go back to somebody who treated them better and with more courtesy. There are going to be some sharks out there, and we. I'm glad that we're equipping people to deal with that. But I just wanted to underline the point that one of the errors I have seen some sellers get into, actually, owners of businesses being overly cynical, which I don't think is necessary either. Have you seen deals fall out of bed because your business sellers have just got too cynical about the buyers? I have just seen a, a couple of deals where numbers that was presented in the beginning, got, it got chipped away slowly and you ended up with something that was not of interest to the seller. I'm sure that the, the buyer was still wanted to buy the business that just didn't want to pay that number that they had initially thought. And, and you know what, there can also be in some cases justification for that. The seller is also liable to present what is a fairly accurate picture. And if you're saying you're making 500,000 in SDE and a little bit of a, a look under the hood shows that it's actually only 300 because you were running most of your marketing uh, expenses over your personal credit card and it didn't show in the accounts. It's fair enough that the buyer will then say, this is not 500, it's only 300. And therefore we will not go with a six multiples because it looked like a very healthy business. We will give you a five multiples and it's a smaller number. So suddenly you go from what looked like to be 3 million to, to, to one and a half million as well. That's a big difference. Yeah. But that was misrepresentation in the beginning and the deal has to look different at the end of it. Yeah, that's fair as well. And I guess that one of the things that another topic we've danced around before is if you're not clear about your numbers with absolutely no ill will or wish to ask unethically, by sheer ignorance, you can end up, especially for your first time creating a business, which for a lot of people it is in this space, then you can end up giving wildly inaccurate figures. And then, of course, it's natural that <laughs> once the figures correct course, the value of the business is substantially different. All I would say is, and again, go and listen to our earlier podcast, go and do your numbers before you have those embarrassing conversations, go in with some clean numbers, and then you won't have to get a, a horrible difference. Absolutely. It's one of the things that the first thing we do when we speak to our seller that comes to us is that we do a, a deep dive into people's financials and, and ask those questions. What is this account line here? Oh, yeah, that's me paying salary to my wife or, you know, my sister-in-law or something. And we're like, okay, first of all, that all that money you're taking out there to, to potentially lower income tax is now going to hurt you in an exit scenario because 
those expenses are now multiplied with five or six at the buy at the buying time. So cleaning up the the balance sheet is very important before you go to market. That's a very good point, actually. It's exactly like trying to get a personal mortgage, which I've been doing in, in recent years with my wife, is that, or indeed for investment properties, which we have a, a couple of them. When you're trying to lower your tax bill, you want to show as little profit as possible. And when you're trying to get a mortgage, you want to show the highest possible. And there's always that terrible dance. And I guess you've got to just look ahead one, two or three years in your business life and trying to figure out the path between them. Talking of advisors, I think having a, a broker or an M&A advisor like you guys are, and having a tax advisor and having a conversation where they're both involved. I think it's really critical because there's no point in giving the government hundreds of thousands in tax more than you owe them, but equally five times an expense that you can't claim is pretty nasty. If you pay 20% on tax or 40%, whatever their tax rate, 19% capital gains in this country or, or, or your um, corporate tax rate, then that's a heck of a lot less valuable to you in the future than a 5x, in other words, five, 500% multiply of that. So you've got to weigh those up. It just strikes me anyway. I'm, an, I'm not a tax advisor, nor do I play one on the internet, but go and, go and talk to a tax advisor as well, an M&A advisor. Have you got any thoughts on that? Acknowledging that you're also not a tax advisor, but have, have you seen classic mistakes around that? Absolutely. And mistakes are made just because sometimes also just because we are founders. And at the moment when we started the business, maybe you and I started something together. Hey, I founded the company, but 50% of the shares are yours, but they are all in my name. And you and I, we know that 50% is yours, but then three years down the line, you want to sell the business and oh, now all the tax burden is on me because they are all in my name. But we did that out of no ill will, just out of let's get cracking here and let's do this. There are many of these mistakes that are done just because you, you don't know everything. So it is just important to have all these things reviewed long before you go to market. For instance, if I was to offload half of my shares to you, so if I was offloading them to you at 10 pounds, and then tomorrow we're selling the whole business at a million, the tax authority is going to clearly say that those 10 pounds that I offloaded them to you the day before is not real. There's a bit of preparation time here. You can, in a certain period of time, say, okay, I'm going to offload my shares to you now for a couple of thousand, and then we can maybe justify that it grew in that period. Some of it takes time to fix or to get right. Yeah, that's a very good point because I, I had some um, potential clients in the mastermind the other day I was speaking to about their company structure and um, without revealing anything confidential, but they said they had, had one person helping them out who's very good at, at a certain area of the business. I think it was sourcing and they had a sort of informal agreement and um, I don't think they had a limited company. I said, I'm not an expert in these matters, but please talk to a company lawyer. Please talk to an accountant as well. Because often in Britain, anyway, in my experience, and I can't speak for other jurisdictions, but in Britain, a good small business accountant will have seen a lot of things before and could give a bit more common sense advice, shall we say, than a lawyer about related to law type topics. And I said, please have those discussions early because it was about their first year in business. I said, now is a great time to clean things up because I could see they're on a trajectory where I could see them selling within three or four years, quite a nice sum if it keeps going and who knows. So now let's come back to the buyers and their sneaky behavior. So we're back to the mistakes that we make as sellers, which given that we've got professionals buying and amateur business sellers, if you like, then it's not surprising that we make most of the mistakes, but there are other things we've got to look out for. Now you mentioned to me before about the way that people are in the interview. So tell me a bit more about how that could show up. So very early on, there will be a conversation between the founders and the buyers. And, and of course they will have to get along at some point, but the buyer would definitely want to know, are you staying in this business? What are, what is your reasons for selling? So that's a question that comes up in, in those. Why are you selling? Okay. Is it the 
are you tired? Are you you burned out? Is it they know they are not going to hear the reasons at all because it's tanking uh, because that could be why they are selling as well. But then most probably they will not be buying the company. But the buyer needs to know, you know, why did you start this? What problem are you solving? Who are your clients? And are you going to stay in this business? And if not, uh, how long can we rely on you in supporting us? Because you have to understand that they are taking over that whole company. There are employees, suppliers, and there's a clientele and customers and everything. It's an ongoing business that they are taking over. So it's not easy just to say, okay, I'm going to take my check and then I will be out in, in, in two weeks. As a buyer, I'll be like, oof, that's a tough call because I would love someone to hang around a little bit longer that knows this business. Not forever, for a little bit longer and guide me conversation with suppliers and the employees, et cetera, et cetera. So these interview, be honest there. They need to know this. They want to know this, the buyers. And you as a seller has to be honest and tell them, what are you feeling and what do you want to do? Okay. So that's not so much sneaky behaviors as around reasons for why you're selling. So it sounds no. like that's more, an all, nevertheless, a sort of tricky moment possibly rather than some sneaky behavior by the buyers. Yeah. I suppose I'm like, I feel like a bit like a sort of bad tabloid journalist out digging for dirt and you're saying, well, most people are very nice. I'm not expecting people to behave badly or, or to necessarily happy dastardly, but I think it's good to be wise when you go in. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I mean, there, there could be, if you are selling into a very large aggregator that has dozens of a branch on an operation that most probably will mean that they have a very strong operational department. And that will in turn mean that some of the people that you as a seller have employed or contracted with or working with will be left off and, and fired or let go uh, because the aggregator, the buyer doesn't need them. They have their own in-house team that knows all of this. So if that is not brought up, then I think either the, the buyer will just execute it and do it. And that could be a little bit, you know, harsh and it could sound harsh and be harsh. So again, here as a seller, ask, Hey, what's going to happen with my team? My great PPC guys that I've been working with for five years and they've done a great job and uh, or, or whoever you have in your team, what's going to happen with them? And, and I, I just hope that the seller will be honest and say this, we have 10 black belts uh, in-house that does this amazingly. And we don't really need uh, the people that you brought in, but, but at least be honest. I have the question and be, I hope that they will answer honestly what they're going to do with your people. Everything has a price. And I guess if people are going to, if an aggregator is going to take over your business and they're well-funded, they can probably pay you a bit more, but on the other hand, a really significant personal impact for you is somebody you've worked with for five years and given work to is suddenly going to be unemployed. And I guess if you feel bad about it, then if you've got more money coming in that you can afford to make a personal gesture or have the business pay or both such that at least you give them a good redundancy or pay them a bonus, or you can acknowledge it from the emotional point of view as well as financially. As you say, the honesty is is the key bit. And I guess for me also, and, and tell me about this, how much of a red flag is it if the buyer is not so much dishonest, but just doesn't mention stuff they're going to do? Is that really bad or is that just none of your business once you've sold the company? No, if I was in that conversation, we will ask all those questions and we will get the buyer to come out. If it's a one-to-one -one buyer to seller, a buyer is going to try and do everything that is in their benefit then why ask questions or why put things up there uh, that is not to their benefit? Fair enough. So it, I guess what you're saying is that the it's caveat emptor, isn't it? So it's not so much, no, that's wrong. Well, no, Ca caveat um, vendor. Anyway, yeah. so our, our Latin, I mean, my, my Latin certainly too dodgy to say for sure. But what we're saying is 
it's up to you as the seller if you have something that bothers you or to even figure out what are the questions you should ask and then to ask them. And I can really see also, by the way, why an advisor or even a broker or both, and you, you do both roles, is an important person there because it can be quite embarrassing to ask very direct questions when it's your company and there's a lot of emotion involved. And also you don't know what you don't know. You don't know to ask that question if you didn't know that you needed no. to. So again, a reason that you should at least talk to an advisor, in my opinion. I want to say one thing here. When you are negotiating, if you're being pushed by the buyer and you're having a hard stop and are saying a hard no, it's very hard, difficult to go back on that. People's egos and their, you know, all the emotions that is in it. But if you have that third party in between, if we go to the, to the buyer and say, okay, this is completely out of line. We, we are not going to move on that point. And, uh, you know, then two days later, get a message, you know, then, then we are out of the deal. We can go back to the seller and say, listen, I think we need to loosen up a little bit here. And then we can go back and say, okay, we're willing to backtrack a little bit, you know, which is easier for us to do than it is for the seller because it is emotional and, and you can just say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And then when you go home and you are a little bit quiet and you think about, ah, oh, it's not that bad, but you already said, no, I'm going to do this, you know. It's funny, isn't it? The ego thing you mentioned is important, but also in terms of kind of authority, in a sense, um, if you've delegated authority to a lawyer or in your case, a broker or an M&A expert, then in a sense, you can have the freedom to throw your toys out of the pram and people understand that's you expressing your emotions. Whereas if you are the principal, you're the only person doing it, in a way, if you say no, and then you say yes next week, not just from an emotional point of view or ego, but from a common sense point of view, there is a question mark. When this guy says no, does he mean no? Whereas if you're just throwing your signs out of the pram and the broker is the person who finally delivers the, the thought through no or the thought through yes, that it's kind of clearer for people to differentiate between emotion and, and reality. Absolutely. If I were doing this process, even if I were very, very mean-spirited, and I'm not advising anyone this, but frankly, if somebody does not want to pay a, a broker a, a percentage of the deal, I would still hire somebody to go and deliver the bad news just to have somebody there. Because there is something about the power dynamic that's different, isn't it? When you have somebody who's kind of creeps in and is dressed nicely, and then you can throw your weight around and be all emotional and diva-like. There is a reason why we have these things. Exactly. Enough of me playing um, sort of tabloid journalists here and looking <laughs> for dirt. The, the truth is that a lot of the buyers, the aggregators are charming people. I think that there's almost more of a danger in them being very, very pleasant and you thinking they're your friend and to the point you made, this is a business transaction. It comes down to money, but you know, they're going to be smooth about it in my experience. I mean, it sounds like you've had so many experiences as well with most of the buyers in this space. I actually, I love what we are doing because we are speaking to extremely smart people on both sides. I love founders. I'm a founder. I think founders are such an important cornerstone of society. We are building companies, hiring people, paying taxes, getting things done. And then you have on the other side, you know, you have the people now that realize that there is this opportunity of rolling up or aggregating brands and, and building online conglomerates like Unilever and Procter and Gamble. And I find that fascinating. And as I said, most of these people are super pleasant, super intelligent, hardworking, like just like the founders uh, and want to get things done in a nice and pleasant and smooth way. So I do want to give kudos to, to both sides of this base here for being, you know, really nice people. I think that this is reassurance at the end of all this, you know, these sort of tempestuous possible conversations you're going to have. Most of it isn't going to be like that, but it's just more subtle than that. The other thing about founders, by the way, I'm also proud to work with founders. 
Um, as a percentage of the gross domestic product, may be quite modest, but I believe, and I, I may have got the statistic wrong, that something small business creates something like 90% or more of new jobs. That's probably not true Correct. right now because we have strange uh, on both sides in, in, you know, in Europe and America. We have a lot of uh, jobs being created and, and uh, very high employment rates. But, uh, you know, it, they are certainly responsible for a lot of new employment, which I think is a thing to be very proud of, really. And you know what? Most founders we see sell their companies within six months, they start something else. As a founder, you, you are not going to check out one drink pina coladas on a, on a beach. That is not why you are a founder, an entrepreneur. You are yeah. here to solve problems that you have seen or bring products to market that you have seen. So six months down the road, you're onto it again, 100%. That makes sense to me. I mean, it's, if you find something that you're good at and you enjoy, then yeah, you'll want to do more of it. So tell us about your M&A uh, slash advisory services, the, the things you do for business sellers. Yeah, well, as, as you can understand, you know, we're, we're serving them. That knowledge gap between the buyers and, and the sellers, we are leveling that out. We are, we're helping people before they go to market, as I said, you know, look at your earnings, your P&L, position your earnings. We, we, then, we then build an investment memorandum or a small teaser uh, that we will show to the market. And then we're proactively going to look for the best buyer for your brand. And that does not necessarily have to be in the aggregator space. I mean, we are speaking to 90 aggregators. But you know what? There are hundreds and or not thousands of strategic buyers out there, you know, brands that have brick and mortar businesses where they will be blown away by the numbers you have you know, achieved online in maybe a very short period of time. And they're going to pay much, much more for that. So we are not just clicking an, an email and sending it to aggregators. We're doing the actual work of saying, hey, this brand could actually be better off with this sort of brick and mortar industry business that could actually enjoy what they have done and would value it anymore. So then comes the introduction to the buy sellers. We, we manage that whole process. Then comes the handling of LOIs. Then comes the, the establishment of a data room where you're putting in all the data, you're answering questions on a due diligence. Uh, we are facilitating that. We are, we're helping reviewing the SPA, the share purchase agreement, et cetera. So throughout the whole process, we are there and uh, we will help you find lawyers and accountants that can help you in your jurisdiction and hopefully get you through a, a stress-free process as possible and give you a fair value for your business. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, there's always that people have, I think within themselves, you can always hear them discussing it, you know, paying a broker, but that's only getting my fair value. And all I can say is you've just got to sit down and really evaluate this thing very objectively, I think. And, and, you know, for a few people, uh, it's possible that you should broker, but I, I would be quite surprised for the first sale. And I, I guess, you know, I do take percentages of brokers in theory, but honestly, it hasn't made me rich yet. I, I just think objectively speaking from my position, um, as somebody who sort of knows these things and tries to help my clients, I think the first time you do anything, you should get expert guidance. You're more likely to screw something up than you are to save a bit of money in my experience yep. when you really know your business, just to sort of play devil's advocate. We did have a guest on, Josh Dietrich, who's written a book about how to sell direct to aggregators. Well, for one thing, as you said yourself, they're only one of the types of buyers out there. May, they may not give you the best money. Number two, he's already sold a seven-figure business through a, a broker. And number three, he's got a background in business-to-business -business sales. So for him, yeah. it makes total sense. Yeah. For others listening and they go and buy his book and do it, I'm delighted. But I think for the majority of us, probably 
spend too little money and too much too little time reaching out to professional advisors full stop like i'm always begging people go and spend more time with your accountant and in this situation like this i think an MA specialist is very well advised is yes, my pet and you know what also very often happens people is that when they dive into this process they are taking the foot off the pedal you know yeah they focus on this process and you might even see revenues tank or something like that and you know in this case you know keep doing what you're doing we will be doing what we're good at you keep doing what you're good at and then we the outcome will actually be better i think yeah, it's another very, very good point. I mean, if you're going to basically take foot off being the CEO and just be the owner and thinking like an owner and, and becoming expert at selling an asset that exists already, that kind of implies you've outsourced a lot of this stuff. And again, Josh, um, to be fair, and I'm just mentioning him because he would be the sort of counter argument to being your own broker, has got to the point where I think he's outsourced and he would talk about that, that getting a lot of operations off his plate, the day-to-day -day stuff. For the smaller business owners I work with, I think very few of them, frankly, are in that position. So you make an extremely good point. And I have come across businesses myself where they took the foot off the gas because they got so obsessed and wrapped up in all the complication. You just, you know, outlined all the process steps in the biggest picture terms. There's still a lot of it. And, and that makes total sense. So for me, yeah. personally, knowing the entrepreneurial ADHD that can be out there, if you haven't got it nailed yet, I, I think you're better off just focusing on wrestling with an Amazon business. That can be bad enough. This input that you're talking about, obviously, that's like the full-on M&A advisory service that you were talking about there. If people want to just sort of take the first steps to getting to know you a bit, what can you offer people? They are, you know, more than welcome to write me on my email directly to me, uh, Klaus at Epic, that's an A-E-P-I-C uh, hyphen partners.com. We have a call, talk to people find out where are they in this journey. It might be too early. It might be that then things that needs to be fixed. So anybody who wants to talk to me and have us have a look at their business, more than welcome to do that. And, and on no strings attached or any commitments or anything. And if you like working with us, then we are happy to, to make an, a, a mandate letter with you where we will work together for a period of time. We only get paid when you get paid. You, we don't charge a retainer or anything. You don't need to pay us to do our job. So, so we're sort of a fee basis only. By the way, that's never a given. I know of a two or three brokers slash advisors who obviously did a lot of advisory work and I'm sure they work hard for it, but they do charge a retainer of quite a bit. And that's not the only person who, in this space. So all I would say to anyone out there is don't be afraid to go and get free advice from an expert. I, and likewise, there are lawyers out there who specialize in certain areas, what will give you a free consultation. There are finance people. I, I would just advise anyone to go and get as much quality free advice from somebody who really knows this stuff as possible and this is definitely one where even if you and I, I say this i will be saying this for a long long time i think i'm looking at you amazon business owner even if you're not thinking you will ever sell your business trust me i've known a lot of people who said i'm not selling my business and then three weeks later three months later i saw them and they've sold it because they got an incredible offer so never say never i, I would just go and get that advice if i were you so class being fantastic stuff it just remains for me to say very big thank you. So Klaus Rosenberg Gotthardt is a wonderfully proper, rich, big European name. Brand. From Epic Partners, spelt with an A, A-E-P-I-C. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and education to learn. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the listeners of the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. 
It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.